0: Welcome to the Little Red Podcast, which brings you China from beyond the Beijing Beltway. I'm Graham Swift from the Australian National University's Department of Pacific Affairs, and I'm joined by my co-host, Louisa Lin, former China correspondent for the BBC and NPR, now with the Centre for Advancing Journalism at Melbourne University. We're on air thanks to support for the Australian Centre on China in the World.
1: Beijing may just be preparing an anniversary gift for Hong Kong in the form of national security legislation. A press report in the South China Morning Post says the bill is now expected to pass on or before June 30th. That's one day before the 23rd anniversary of Hong Kong's return to Chinese rule. And only then will the full draft be made public.
0: The exact date still isn't clear, but slowly the details of the bill are coming into focus. Today we're going to be joined by three guests to address very different aspects of the bill. Legal expert Alvin Chung, Lingnan University professor Ho Lok Sung, and digital activist Glacier Kwong.
1: Let's start with Alvin Chung, an affiliate of New York University's US Asia Law Institute, who's written a lot about Hong Kong's legal system. Alvin, I just spotted a headline in CNN that said China reveals some details of Hong Kong's national security law, and it may be as bad as critics feared. Is it as bad as critics feared? It's difficult to say because there's a lot that we
2: don't know. As far as we're aware, well, Xinhua has Xinhua, the party news agency, has released a summary of what is supposedly in this draft. There is a lot in it that we don't know about, including how the various offences are to be defined, the precise mechanics of how it will operate in Hong Kong, or even which defendants will be rendered to the mainland for detention and or trial. You know, Can I say definitively that the law in substance is as bad as people fear it is? Possibly not. But... The mere fact that there is so much uncertainty about it and the fact that a report in the SCMP said that the full text won't even be made public until it is passed on June the 30th give off some very alarming signals. If Beijing is going to hide the ball to that extent, not only does that raise adverse inferences about what it will contain, but the mere uncertainty itself is worse than any substantive content it could have.
1: But you talk about people being rendered to China. And I mean, it's the case, isn't it, that this legislation would allow Beijing to exercise jurisdiction in some cases. And then, you know, the whole, all the extradition legislation that people were originally protesting about, all of that is no longer necessary, right?
2: That's right. The most worrying aspect of that part of the legislation is that it gives official legal authority to mainland state security to operate in Hong Kong. Now, we know that mainland state security has already been operating in Hong Kong on an unofficial basis. There are strong indications, for instance, that the abductions of Li Bo, the Causeway Bay bookseller, and Xiao Jianhua, the politically connected tycoon from Hong Kong, in both cases several years ago, were orchestrated by or at least had the involvement of state security agents. So what the national security law is doing in that sense is giving formal approval for this sort of thing to happen on a much wider scale.
0: Is it possible in effect that that this is going to set up an entirely parallel judiciary that that somehow runs alongside Hong Kong's courts? I mean, doesn't that make Hong Kong's legal system somewhat meaningless now that you have, uh, you know, as it were, uh, two countries, two legal systems?
2: That is exactly what seems to be happening based on the little we know of the draft text. This is what Ernst Frankel, the German author and refugee from Nazi Germany, referred to as the dual state. He wrote about the phenomenon as early as the 1940s, the idea that there is a so-called normative state, the ordinary law, if, if you like, the that applies to normal commercial public relations, well, state-citizen relations. And then there is what is called the prerogative state, the national security state, And that, the prerogative state, decides where the normative state does or does not apply. There is a very real risk that what is going to happen to Hong Kong is that it will have a dual state imposed upon it.
1: I saw that the former chief justice, Andrew Lee, has also been criticizing the law. And what he has focused on is the fact that the chief executive would be allowed to appoint judges and so this is a real um, undermining of the judiciary how dangerous do you think that that is is that something that happens in other common law jurisdictions the politicizing of judicial
2: appointments at least as far as the common law world goes seems to be a particularly american phenomenon and I, I think we we can form our own opinions as to how well that has worked for the United States of America, but certainly the notion that Carrie Lam can handpick judges based, presumably on how reliably they can convict individuals for government, which is which is what the op-eds in places like the china daily are saying will happen then that's that's certainly not a good sign for judicial
0: independence thinking of that sort of independence there's been a legal academic uh, in beijing a guy called Fei long and he said the legislation could be applied to cases that um occurred in last year's protests especially if they were classified as ongoing events uh suggesting that possibly this legislation could be applied retroactively i mean how, how likely do you think that is
2: Um, so Long is notorious as a hardline, quote-unquote, leftist academic. He seems to be one of the new generations of, um, quote-unquote, guardians of the basic law that Beijing's trying so hard to cultivate. And I would certainly take that sort of indication very seriously. I am sure that a future Court of Star Chamber could find some way to frame the protest campaigns as ongoing or find some way to say that, oh, well, actually, there's an, there's an ongoing element to the offence.
1: Knowing what we know now, how bad is it? How bad is it? It is, it is the
2: end of Hong Kong, as we know it, straight up, because... As I mentioned earlier, this is a dual-state situation. It's going to affect anybody and everybody. You may, you may think if you're an ordinary business person that, oh, it's fine. I'll just stay away from anything remotely sensitive. That's not how it works. You can be involved in something that's not sensitive until suddenly it is.
0: Given the, the absolute contempt that they seem to be treating the Hong Kong government with, you know, they're not even showing Carrie Lam a draft of the bill. Um, you know, they're saying you have to appoint judges who will give us favourable rulings. I mean, isn't this just going to demoralise the system? Aren't you you're going to get some shirking and pushback when, when people are basically being told to be pawns? I mean, no one likes to be a pawn. Is, is it possible you could, you know, see, if not outright resistance, certainly shirking from the, uh, the establishment that's meant to implement these laws?
2: If we're going to worry about anybody in the Hong Kong government at Tamar being demoralized, I think we've already crossed that bridge and dynamited it. It's become abundantly clear over the past at least one to two years that there is nobody in the Hong Kong government who is either able or willing to stand up for Hong Kong's autonomy. So, you know, if we're going to worry about demoralization, I I think that ship has long sailed. As far as whether or not there will be some sort of pushback, there may well be. But I would say this, it has become abundantly clear that the Hong Kong Civil Service is now very much politically captured. We've seen this not only with the registration and electoral office in disqualifying candidates from running for elected office. We've seen this in areas as prosaic as the company's registry or even the food and environmental hygiene department in respect of who does or does not get to operate stores at Lunar New Year's Fairs. So what is likely to happen and what is already happening with the Hong Kong civil service is that they're being subjected to a political purge. There was a statement the other day by a Hong Kong minister to the effect that Hong Kong civil servants must remember that they are also serving the PRC government. Well, where does that leave them?
1: I wanted to just come back to that idea of the dual state. I do remember when we interviewed Nathan Law about a year ago, and he spoke about this dual state that had already emerged. That was already in place then. You know, He was saying that the courts behave differently for political decisions than for economic decisions. I mean, how would this change that kind of idea of the dual state? How would this legislation ramp it up?
2: The big departure under the national security law is that Beijing's assuming direct control over the prerogative state, right? Previously... You know, you could argue that there was a dual state. You could at least put up a somewhat respectable argument that there wasn't. But it seems that Beijing has decided it can no longer trust even politically captured parts of the Hong Kong government to do the dirty work for them. <sighs> that, I think, is the main difference.
1: Should we ask another question about the actual law? Or is there no point? I mean, you've totally covered... You can You can ask anything about the law law you'd like but
2: you know as as i've said nobody that we're aware of has seen the full text and if anybody has they're not telling us what Mm. it is Mm. you know it's very hard for anybody to defend something without knowing what's in it uh but the few indications we have been given suggest that we're in for a very very bad time
1: i think i just do have one final question um We saw Tam Yu Chung, who's a very kind of senior pro-Beijing figure, making these statements that seem to indicate anyone who is opposed to the national security legislation is therefore opposing the basic law because it will be part of the basic law and may not be able to run for election. And I mean, you know, the legislative elections are coming up in September. If the district elections last year were anything to go by, the Democratic camp would do very, very well, sweep the popularly elected section. I mean, how seriously should we take that kind of statement? Is it a trial balloon or is it a a warning.
2: I think we've heard enough pro-Beijing politicians and apparatchiks repeat the notion that anybody who opposes the NSL may not be allowed to run for elected office, that we should take that seriously. I would be really very surprised if the elections for legislative council are free and fair, if that is they take place at all.
1: That was Alvin Cheung from New York University. In Hong Kong, this bill has sparked a massive propaganda campaign. Banners are blanketing buildings. Xinhua says two million Hong Kongers have signed a signature campaign to support it. And in the good old tradition of appalling propaganda, some politicians are even coming out to sing their support for the bill. Here's the controversial pro-Beijing politician Junius Ho voicing his full-throated support for the
3: bill.
0: It's certainly true that some think the bill is necessary. We've been speaking to one vocal supporter of it, Lok Sang, who is a senior research fellow at the Pan Sutong Shanghai, Hong Kong Economic Policy Research Institute at Lingnan University. We spoke before the new details had been released and he began by telling me why Beijing needs to pass the legislation
3: now. Under Article 23, uh, Hong Kong is supposed to legislate locally okay, on behalf of Beijing you know, to ensure national security. You know, That is in Article 23. And uh, the one country two system, of course, consists of this uh, element about the one country part and then uh, the two systems, okay? Under the umbrella of the one country, we have two systems, two different systems here. We, we have different legal systems. We have uh, different uh, institutions. And uh, so Hong Kong is uh, given a lot of autonomy, but there are certain things that we have agreed, okay? And uh, uh, in two hundred three. Uh, we were about to have it legislated, but somehow it didn't work out, you know, because a lot of people were worried and tried to um, avoid uh, uh, doing this. Okay. And um, right now, it's 23 years behind us. And still, you know, Beijing has been waiting, and there's no sign mm. of uh, Hong Kong uh, uh, legislature being prepared, you know, to do this. And the, even though the uh, SAR government, may want to do it, but there's just not enough social support. And each time when the subject is taken up, people fear or spread fear. And and I think there's a lot of worry. And uh, this worry is, in my my view, not not quite justified. You see, I myself had written an article in South China One Post uh, regarding the incident of uh, Mr. Li Bo, who was uh, running a bookshop in Causeway Bay. And he was uh, kidnapped, you know, and brought back to the mainland. You know, that is something that is not right. And uh, in the end, actually, the mastermind behind it is now under arrest. The, the law enforcement agencies on the mainland have no right, you know, to cross the border and uh, try to enforce uh, some laws in Hong Kong. So that had caused worry. And I I had uh, um, uh, suggested that Beijing and all parties should try to a remedy you know because you, you need to restore people's confidence in in uh, one country two systems uh, certain incidents had caused some problems and people's uh, confidence had been shaken to some extent but as far as I can see Beijing has all the intent you know to, to keep Hong Kong stable and prosperous and it is uh, the this so-called violence you know following this uh, controversy over the fugitive law amendment bill, uh, which was tabled, uh,
1: the extradition legislation.
3: Yeah, right, and yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. There was so much uh, distortion of uh, the contents of the legislation, and you know, all kinds of stories are floating around. And I can understand that uh, some some people who oppose the, uh, the the mainland had tried to cause that 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 fear. Protests were quite massive, and the protests turned violent. A lot of businesses had been hit uh, physically. Uh, there was uh, vandalism and a lot of destruction, and even you know arson. And people's confidence in, in Hong Kong has been sinking.
1: Let, let me let me just ask you though about the legislation itself, because you have written that you're sure the law will not adversely affect the lives of 99.9% of law-abiding citizens. I mean, how can you know? Because the issue I think is the word law-abiding, the way that China's national security laws are written, they're so broad, they're so vague, that it's hard to tell what is within the law and what is without the law. That is
3: why we need to to wait. But in any case... My understanding, okay, my understanding, uh, and that is also the understanding of some of my colleagues, you know, who, including uh, uh, Ronnie Tong, and some other uh, people who uh, barristers, you know, uh, and they, they really uh, should be familiar with this. And the understanding is that if someone is arrested, he's going to be tried in Hong Kong, okay? In, uh, under Hong Kong's uh, legal system, because Hong Kong's uh, judicial tradition has been quite strong, okay? And uh, for years, it is like that.
1: How can you be so sure, though, when we are hearing from Chinese spokesman people, they're talking about national security courts being set up. They're talking about the necessity to have national security agencies stationed in Hong Kong. They're also talking about foreign judges perhaps not sitting on security cases. So it does seem like it might not be the structures that Hong Kongers are used to.
3: We do need to wait for more details. But as far as I understand, Hong Kong is protected by the basic law. At least, you know, there is this understanding and all the discussion following that extradition law discussions, even in that particular regard, it is also clearly mentioned that if someone has... Uh, made an offence in Hong Kong, he is going to be tried in Hong Kong. It is someone who has who has uh, uh, committed an offence and on, on the mainland and fled to Hong Kong, and then uh, he may be extradited.
0: Mm. So, so what about the situation of say someone who is in Hong Kong but has committed an offence against someone in China? What uh, what is their status? That that seems a bit unclear. Yeah, the,
3: the, if the offence is committed in Hong Kong, he is uh, tried in Hong Kong. That is the understanding. But of course, I cannot. Speak on behalf of Beijing. My reading of the Basic Law is that Hong Kong's right to this is protected by the Basic Law. So, so I, I have confidence in the Basic Law. And I, but referring to uh, this, uh, probably there may be a special court uh, set up to do this. But even if it is special court set up to do uh, to handle uh, national security related cases, they are still tried in Hong Kong. Okay, and it will be Hong Kong judges who will be presiding over the the trials. And I am not worried that someone from the mainland will sit on uh, as a judge.
1: Isn't it early, though, to be confident when it's still not clear what's in the legislation? And it. Isn't it problematic, though, that Hong Kongers were not involved in crafting that legislation? It seems to bypass the government, the legislature, the judiciary entirely.
3: Exactly. But there is just no choice, you know, because uh, Beijing has waited 23 years. Uh, Beijing had allowed Hong Kong the opportunity to do this, but Hong Kong had refused to do it. And also, the, the situation has grown so, uh, so threatening to Beijing. They cannot uh, sit aside and uh, let things unfold in Hong Kong, yeah. you know, because there's evidence that Hong Kong society is under threat because the uh, business environment has, has turned down. You say, so, so I'm really uh, worried as uh, many businessmen, okay, how can they invest in Hong Kong if their investment is not? are protected, the properties are not protected.
0: Um, If I could go back a little bit, Professor Ho, I mean, there was a whole bunch of things that the Hong Kong legislature or the Hong Kong uh, LegCo was expected to do, and this is not the only thing they failed to deliver on. I mean, another obvious example is Article 45 to bring universal suffrage to Hong Kong. And also, that's been 23 years, and and we are nowhere near that. Um, So, I mean... In some ways, can you understand how this is sort of a raft of measures and to to selectively choose this one while not implementing universal suffrage is a problem?
3: Yeah, yeah. Let let, let me put the record straight. You see, the basic law, Article 45, explicitly says that candidates for the chief executive post have to be vetted, you know, have to be nominated by a nominee committee. But instead of accepting that, which has already been in the basic law, Okay, the first day. Okay, so we know it. But still, you have, you have people saying that we, we, we don't need uh, the nominating committee. Okay, that is an, a violation of the terms that are already in the basic law. So you, you really cannot blame Beijing, you know, because uh, Beijing had given Hong Kong people the opportunity. In uh, 2014, actually, the government had this proposal, uh, and that particular proposal allows anyone who has got even 10% of the nomination of the uh, members in the nominee committee, they can still go into public debate with other candidates. And then, of course, eventually, these potential candidates have to be approved by the committee. I'm pretty sure a lot of uh, people in in the so-called opposition would be able to pass that threshold and run, you know, at least uh, uh, enter an open debate with uh, other contestants You know, and if they have a case and if they're convincing, uh, it's very difficult for the nominee committee, you know, to to disapprove to disprove this, uh, uh, these uh, candidates. But they turn it down. They wouldn't accept it.
0: Um, now, to get back to, the, the, the I guess, the financial question, which is sort of at the root of the merits of this legislation, I mean, as an economist, um, you've written in the China Daily that Hong Kong will maintain its status as a global financial centre and the positive effects will far outweigh the negative effects. I mean, can you explain how you how you see that panning out? How's this, how is this possible, given that the first reaction of the stock market was to drop uh, more than 1,000 points?
3: You see, the fact is that uh, earlier this year, the Global Financial Center Index uh, was published, and Hong Kong was ranked fifth. And Shanghai was ahead of us. Tokyo was ahead of us. The gap between Shanghai and Hong Kong had been narrowing over the years, and Shenzhen was two two places or three places uh, behind us. If these mainland financial centers can be ranked so high, Hong Kong is quite different. Hong Kong, of course, has a lot of advantages over them, you know, because we have a free capital flow, we have a common law system, and uh, we have a, a much, much freer uh, flow of information. But actually, you know, these sanctions uh, are, are being imposed by America is now benefiting Hong Kong. You know how much uh, Hong Kong exchange has soared? You know, the stock price has soared. A lot of these listings in America is now uh, seeking a listing in Hong Kong. This expectation is actually driving Hong Kong's further rise.
1: I mean, I just wanted to pick up on that because recently we've heard news that Chinese airlines are not being permitted to fly to the US. How does Hong Kong fit into that? If the Hong Kong Policy Act is followed through to its logical conclusion and Hong Kong airlines are judged as being from China, then it could potentially have a massive impact on Hong Kong's role as an international financial center.
3: Apparently. The violence and the riots and, and the and the disruptions to social order and peace will go on, you know, because uh, just as the COVID-19 uh, subsided to some extent, uh, protesters are already disrupting businesses in, in, in our malls, and uh, in uh, there were isolated cases of uh, petrol bomb throwing too. So, if this kind of violence continues, Hong Kong is going down the drain anyway. You see, at least we have some hope now, okay, if somehow those people who instigate such uh, violence and such uh, disruptions to, 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 to businesses, okay, if that, that can be stopped, at least we have a chance, okay? And uh, secondly, I really doubt that uh, Hong Kong will be treated, you know, just like mainland as um, uh, the Trump administration is now suggesting, okay? Trump was saying that Hong Kong is just like another um, uh, mainland city, you know, it, it is not, uh, uh, it's one country, one system, okay, those are uh, his words. But I'm saying that uh, um, if that should come true, it's America's interests uh, in Hong Kong that will be hurt. Uh, America is, is, is treating Hong Kong uh, so badly, okay, it, I would expect that uh, there would be some boycott of American goods here.
0: Hmm. But isn't that, is, isn't that partly an artefact of the trade figures because of the final destination of a lot of these goods is not Hong Kong, it's, it's, it's China because they're taking advantage of the low, the low tariffs.
3: Hong Kong is helping America to garner that trade balance. The huge investments that American companies have invested in Hong Kong, all of that, okay, will be shaken. Already... America is seeing this backfiring, right? you know, because when uh, New York Stock Exchange can no longer list these Ameri- uh, these uh, mainland companies, how massive, okay, financial businesses uh, they, they they are now giving up. I- I'm worried about America, you know, because uh, China is the, the second largest economy and actually the largest economy, if you look at purchasing power parity, over f- uh, 40 years, at least three times as fast as American, and if somehow. This this sanction. It's going to hurt America more more than anyone else, and over the long haul, this is going to be quite disastrous.
0: Yeah, if only Donald Trump was an economically rational actor. But um, to get on to get onto the happiness index, I mean, this is something you've worked on. Uh, and um, I mean, how is Hong Kong scoring these days? And and I mean, who's to uh, who's responsible? I guess for the trends in Hong Kong's happiness.
3: Well, last year uh, the the score was pretty pretty low. I think it's the lowest ever. I don't know what it's going to be for this particular year you know, because uh, we haven't done a survey this year. But um, the fact that uh, the incidence of mental illnesses has gone up considerably and that has been documented. So I'm worried that it's not going to be that good too. You see, and, and that is why I've been trying to promote what I call life education, You know, trying to bolster our mental capital. You see, if you have... Uh, in the strength, then you can withstand these stresses okay, coming from all around you. you see? And, and I think at this time, more than ever, we need very strong mental capital in order to go through all of these rough times.
1: Because the evidence, the surveys show roughly a third of Hong Kongers now suffer from PTSD. Almost 80% were tear gassed in the last year. I mean, do you think the government of Carrie Lam is to blame for this happiness decline? Because if that extradition legislation had not ever been introduced, Hong Kongers could still be scoring much higher on the happiness index.
3: You see, what needs to be done has to be done. Unfortunately, I did blame Carrie Lam's administration for not introducing uh, measures that can put these worries to rest. There have been different proposals from different quarters. Other people had suggested that Hong Kong people, if, if, uh, if it's a Hong Kong person, okay, uh, let them be tried in Hong Kong, okay, instead of being tried on the mainland. And, and if you can have that kind of arrangement, the extradition bill could have been much better accepted, but uh, Carol Lam didn't do that, and, and and I think it is uh, uh, something that should have been done, and they haven't done it. So they have some responsibility. But on the other hand, John Lee, you know, the security secretary, had uh, um, uh, given a, a briefing at which I had uh, attended, and I was pretty con- convinced, okay, by by him, saying that actually there are so many provisions. Uh, that in the extradition bill, that uh, people actually would be much better protected having the bill than without it. Okay, because there are, um, there are so many requirements that have to, to be met before one can be extradited uh, to the mainland, you see. So, uh, and also it was drafted uh, modeled under the United Nations. So, so it's not something to be feared. And a lot of those people who protested Uh, were misguided, and I've seen videos to the effect that someone in Hong Kong having done nothing wrong can be extradited to the mainland. You see, that kind of uh, fear-mongering videos have been circulating so widely, and a lot of people were worried for no justifiable reason. So I think uh, the extradition bill itself uh, was misunderstood, and the government did not handle it well, so to some extent, Uh, they have responsibility, but on the other hand, this lack of trust in the first place and unwillingness to really communicate, both sides are responsible.
1: That was Ho Lok Sang from Lingnan University. Even before the legislation has been passed, it's already having an effect in Hong Kong, especially on young people. We're also joined by Glacier Kwong, a digital activist and the founder of the NGO Keyboard Frontline. She told us what she sees as the major aim
4: of the legislation. I think the legislature generally aims to dismantle the key components of the movement, which is the electoral institutions in Hong Kong, the protest itself, and the advocacy for international support. This is the three main elements for the movement in Hong Kong in 2019. Because we were trying to organize protests or organize uh, our own promotion means for the movement online. Basically, we use Telegram, we use online forums, we use Twitter, we use Facebook and Instagram to spread the word and to call for more international support. And by passing this law, all of these acts will be considered as trying to overthrow the Communist Party's regime, which will leave these things subject to legal prosecution. So for example, if I tweet about Hong Kong, or I tweet about the movement in Hong Kong, or I tweet about maybe we should start a protest on Twitter, then I will be subject to legal prosecution. This is the worst case scenario that could happen. And it sounds a bit scary, but when we look at what happened in China, it is highly possible that the same thing will happen in Hong Kong, and only this time they don't use censor. They simply insert a law into Hong Kong, and that will happen. We we are afraid of speaking up because I myself was worried as well when I heard about having that law. I was having a bit of hesitation of, oh, maybe I should stop doing what I'm doing, but then we cannot voluntarily give up our rights, so we will continue. But that fear, it's the key part of this law. They are trying to force us into a self-censored situation or force us to refrain from um, trying to organize any more protests. And this is how the Communist Party is re- uh, is retaliating against us on the movement, because they see these three com- key components of the movement can be dismantled through this national security law.
1: So by organizing, say, a protest or something, or even tweeting your opposition to the law, you're effectively providing the evidence of acts of sedition subversion or secession is that what you're saying yes
4: because um we haven't seen the actual text of the law it may be possible that they have a they, they they can limit it to a period for example since 2014 onwards it's possible that they could write it that way so it doesn't matter if I keep talking or not because I have been doing that since 2012 and I will be subject to this law as long as they set the period long enough like there is a period of time that the law covers. And it's very dangerous. And I really feel like Chinese government will not hesitate to use any kind of these tweets or comments or Instagram posts or Facebook posts as a evident that we are trying to commit local terrorism or trying to commit subversion against the Chinese Communist Party. But what kind of
1: evidence is there that they might make this retroactive? So you enact something in law in 2020, but extend it back to 2014 or
4: 2015, how do we know that that's even a possibility? Because drafted legislation that they proposed back in 2003 about um, the local version of the national security law, it's actually um, in there. There is a term that it allows the law to be traced back into times before the law is enacted. And it's it's actually what they have been proposing before. So we see the possibility of they doing the same. And if I am the Chinese uh, government, I would be very happy to do it because it, I can make sure that everybody that's going against me since the very beginning of the whole civil society thing will be arrested or can be arrested, and it it puts enough pressure on us as activists and us as oppos the opposition of the Chinese government. So, I mean, is it already having an impact? Uh, I'm hearing that sort
1: of Telegram groups are being a shutting down of their own accord. Um, and I saw that the police even shut down a telegram group, e- despite the fact that this legislation doesn't even exist. I mean, how how much impact is it already
4: having? It's shaken the faith of, of us as activists, because there seems to be no room to fight against such top-down insertion of the law into Hong Kong, because they are putting it inside annex Three of the basic law, where we don't have any means within the institutions to stop it. And the fear is actually very scary because we have been speaking a lot against China. And I have been, I I did have that hesitation about, oh, shit, maybe I should actually go back to Germany as soon as possible, because I'm definitely not the first one they will get to, but they will eventually get to me. And this is actually scary enough for me and my family and my friends as well. But um, I really feel like, we have decided, okay, whatever, Um, it's going to get to us anyway. So maybe we should keep doing whatever we are doing. So maybe there will be a change and we are calling for international support that we hope by pressuring the Chinese government enough, maybe the Chinese will change their mind into not doing it in such a harsh way. Or maybe they will return the high autonomy that we were promised at the first place to us. But it's not a very optimistic situation currently.
1: So... Already, are you seeing a difference in the way that activists
4: are communicating with each other? Um, I think it's really uh, significant that I see a change when I see all the intended candidates are speaking publicly. They are trying to avoid possible infringement against the national security law because they feel like that this will be another excuse for the Chinese government and the Hong Kong government to disqualify them as candidates to run for the election coming up in September. So I, I, I actually see this kind of like being more careful about what they're talking about when they're touching on issues about China when it comes to um, their public like post on Facebook or on Instagram. And on the other hand, I have seen friends trying to delete their Facebook post or trying to shut down whatever they are doing online because they fear that if the law can be traced back, then they will be in trouble. And they are starting to think about, oh, maybe I should immigrate to somewhere else or I should stop being so politically active in Hong Kong.
1: Isn't the chilling effect the point
4: of it, just like the laws in the People's Republic of China? Yes, of course. This is exactly the point to, uh, they are trying to—they are trying to do—and by in, in implementing such law into Hong Kong, the ambiguity of that law is the most frightening part. I totally agree with you, and this is the tactics that the Chinese government uses because it's much more effective than really clearly stating what exactly you do is infringing the law. Because they want to provide as much room for explanation and for interpretation as possible when they have to get to you. So no matter how careful I am, because the law is so ambiguous, they can always find something that I've said or I've done to get to me or get to other activists. This is exactly the point.
0: One of the focuses of Chinese leaders' criticism of Hong Kong is the education system, particularly courses like liberal studies that are said to encourage critical thinking. Now, given you've just come through this education system, what are your thoughts on it and how do you think it might change in the future?
4: I think the Hong Kong education system has not been very encouraging in terms of critical thinking. Like, this is my feeling growing up because we are very exam-oriented and there is one big exam after in secondary school that you really have to uh, score really good grades in order to get into university. So our whole, actually my whole life, like kind of sur- uh, like go around this exam. But I, am very, I was very lucky that I have met really good teachers and they are really... Um, they really encourage me to think and to argue with them so i'm the, I'm that kind of student that will raise my hand and say no I don't agree with you and then had this huge debate with all of my teachers and they are very encouraging and very kind enough to do that with me but the system itself does not encourage any critical thinking not even the subject liberal studies because in that exam you you your you lead to like answer the questions in a certain way and you know that you have to like say a certain things in order to score score good grades because we all study that marking scheme very hard and this is um, my general feeling towards the education system i don't think it's encouraging a lot of critical thinking but um after i think after the national security legislation after that they have to promote more um, patriotism into the education system I think it it will only get worse and there are so many ways that they could stop you from critical thinking or they can discourage you from doing so for example an exam to say that you have to pass in order to get into university and you will have to sacrifice some thinking and some your own ideas in order to get in and this is this will gradually and slowly change your mindset towards something for example the Chinese government.
0: The vice chancellors of five of Hong Kong's top universities have come out enthusiastically in favour of the legislation, even before they've read it. Glacier, were you surprised by this?
4: I'm very shocked that any university chancellors will will support that legislation because academic freedom or freedom of speech is the fundamental basis of how we create knowledge. We are not allowed to say certain things or look into certain things. There is no room for creating new knowledge or getting anywhere near to the truth and this is very devastating for me to see my own university university's chancellor saying that we are in support of this law and it's so degrading to academic freedom and to the university of hong kong we stand for much greater things for example sun yat sin it's one of our alumni and his idea is clearly not about trying to crack down on protests he is one of the greatest protesters in chinese history and in hong kong history as well and I really feel like uh, Zhang Zhang has betrayed the long-standing tradition of the University of Hong Kong.
1: I mean, do you think there's a real prospect that Hong Kong is heading towards a, a Chinese, a
4: China-style in internet, a closed system? Yes, I think so. I don't think they will um, implement the Great Firewall in Hong Kong immediately because that will greatly hinder Hong Kong's role as a financial hub, because being a financial hub means you have to have free flow of information, and because we have we still have some kind of economic utility for China, that's why they would they wouldn't do it immediately. But in 2019, the government has threatened to shut down the internet in case of larger protest and this is really alarming for us as a digital rights activist because we see not only it will have effects on our um, uh, rights for assembly or rights to information but it will actually hinder the lives or emergency services in hong kong so it's very worrying that the government has already said or oh, we may consider shutting down the internet and actually they have applied for an injunction in october to ban the spreading of inciting messages on online forums. They specified an online forums called in Hong Kong, and also um, channels like Telegram. They have specified these kind of platforms that they are not allowed to spread or assisting the spread of these kind of a uh, message that incite violence. We consider that as a. Um, that's a hindrance to freedom of speech because, um, it, and it is also holding platforms responsible. They are not supposed to assist the spread of these messages. So they are responsible for whatever is posted on the platforms. This is actually encouraging the platforms to censor the users' speech, so as to control the spread of the movement or the spread of the messages about protests.
1: I mean, what is it like to be twenty something? You're twenty three, and you are the digital generation. So you're seeing your future pretty much changing overnight. What does that feel like? It feels like a lot
4: to take in at the first place. I was actually in shock when I read about National... Because I was undergoing self-quarantine at home. And when I was hearing the news, I was like... Oh my god you must be kidding me it's not happening to me it's not happening to hong kong and then i i um, and then i was talking to my colleagues about uh, what will be what will the law be and what it's going to happen and it's very scary because we don't see a clear picture of what it's going to happen in the future we only know oh there will be a law and and that's it and you kind of start imagining what is the worst case scenario someone will break into your house and then take you away and those kind of scary scenarios and Um, And the worst part is because I have experienced a high degree of freedom when I was younger because I grew up in a relatively free Hong Kong and I have a a lot of freedom to do whatever I like online or I, for, for example, we could discuss Hong Kong independence a few years before and now there's no room for any discussion. So I have experienced the whole scale of freedom that I could enjoy and now I'm told I'm gonna lose it very soon and it's really uncomfortable and really scary and I really thought of leaving at the first like first instant that I know that it's gonna happen but then I realized no I'm not voluntarily giving up my freedom it's I think it's the difference between being dragged into an arena and walking to it with your heads up it's it's kind of the little difference that I see it's very important and I feel like we should do whatever we can to try to stop that or I won't feel very comfortable with myself if I just flee Hong Kong and then do nothing. In my head, I'm trying to imagine it. So much
1: of the life of a 20-something is online, isn't it?
4: <laughs> I live my life online, basically. <laughs> I feel like the life that I will be leading will be very different. For example, I will like have a lot of second thoughts when I'm texting, or maybe I shouldn't send that, or maybe I should change the way I phrase it. And it's not usually what I do. I just type whatever I'm thinking. And and I send it to my friends and I don't really have to think about the content of my text. But then I realize they don't do that in China. They really have to be very careful when they're texting because there are sensors, there are algorithms, and there are surveillance everywhere. And their life is pretty much under 24-7 surveillance. Actually, we are all under surveillance because we have Facebook, we have Google, they're all watching our lives. But it's very different when it's coming from your own government. Google and Facebook, worst case scenarios, they're only selling you out for money. But your government actually kind of, I feel like they kind of want us dead. And they are watching you and monitoring you every single minute. And it's going to be really scary for every one of us. Has that process already started? Are you? Do you
1: already have a moment of in- inhibition when you start to text and when you think, oh, should
4: I say that? It happens for me quite often because um, when we were working, for example, when we talk about maybe if we will go to so-called illegal protest, I don't talk about it in like, unless it's end-to-end encryption or else I won't say very concretely where I am or where am I going because I feel like it will lead me into trouble because they can intercept the messages between me and and the recipient of the message. Unless it's end-to-end encryption or else I won't really say specifically what I am doing. And I feel like this is the norm and the daily routine of many Hong Kong activists now because we know that the government will be watching and they will be watching even more afterwards.
1: In Vice, you wrote with Joshua Wong and you said forfeiting Hong Kong is not an option as this is the only place we call home. There is no future for us if our home is compromised.
4: Do you see this just as a fight for Hong Kongers? No, I don't think it's just a fight for Hong Kongers. Of course, we, for example, Joshua and I feel very strongly about this because this is the place where we grew up and that's why it feels so important to us because this is our home. But forfeiting Hong Kong is not only a problem for us as Hong Kongers but for the world because we are the frontier against the dictatorship of China and we serve a very strategic importance to both China and the free world as well. We are the channel for economic exchange between the free world and China. And we actually is um, the foreign fund channel for China. So Because we uh, Hong Kong dollars are kind of linked with the US dollar. So China rely a lot on Hong Kong to get its hands on the US dollar. And after all, the world is still revolving around the US dollar. So we are actually very important. And, if we are compromised, we will be the loophole the free world would suffer from because China can get its uh, can lay its hands on other countries and other places of the world through us and through other its investment programs. For example, we can see there is a trend of China buying up firms and buying up ports in Europe and in Greece and Italy and. When they realize they are too dependent, it will be too late. This is why we are trying so hard to call for international support, because this is not only a fight for us as Hong Kongers. It's a fight against the dictatorship ideology that China represents.
1: guess right, finally, I do want to ask you, I mean, what is the future that you see? I mean, it's clear China has overwhelming might. A struggle to continue to fight, to continue to struggle seems so doomed you know, the path ahead, if you were to follow Joshua Wong's path, he's just has a sort of cavalcade of charges against him in prison terms. When you look
4: at your future, what what, what do you yourself see? I'm not sure, actually. I don't have a concrete answer of what I will see, like, in the next five years. Um, I really want to finish my PhD because it's a, real, it's a it's a topic that I really like and I really enjoy doing research and hiding myself from all of these like politics and stuff because I really enjoy the work. But then I feel like it's my respons- uh, my responsibility to continue to fight or follow Joshua's footsteps or someone else's footstep and together we should do something. And it's true that it's doomed, but then I tend to not think about the outcome of things like I don't believe that we will see immediately the outcome that we want no matter it is full democracy or a referendum or anything else it will be a really long struggle but if everybody thinks like oh maybe it's too difficult let's not do it then nothing will happen and history have been telling me that dictatorship will eventually fall it takes time but they will eventually fall so I'm counting on this kind of like history lessons that maybe someday the dictatorship of China will fall
0: that was digital activist Glacier Quang. Mm-hmm. I'm Grant Smith and you've been listening to the Little Red Podcast bringing you China from beyond the Beijing Beltway many thanks to our guests Alvin Chun Lok Sung and Glacier Kwong and to my co-host Louisa Lin our editor is Andy Hazel Background research is by Julia Bergen. Our theme music is by Susie Wilkins. And our cartoons and GIFs
3: are courtesy of Seb Danter. Bye for now.